Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We come now in verses 12 to 21 to one of the great doctrinal passages of the book of Romans. We're going to try and unpick and uh, make sense of and hopefully be a blessing. Romans chapter 5 and uh, we're going to have a word of prayer before we look into this section. Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of being together in this place today and in each of our homes uh, to be able to come together uh, around your word and we thank you, Father, that uh, as we open your word, you promise to speak to us through your word, to minister to us through your word and help us today to glean from you that which you would have for us. May we receive a blessing Father, from your word, give me wisdom, I pray from on high, that I might have uh, clarity of thought, I might have simplicity of speech, that I might uh, be able to communicate your truth in a way that, Father God, be a blessing to those gathered together. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, minister to us through your word, and may we receive from you that which you would have for us today as we study your word together. Uh, Father, we thank you for how great thou art. We thank you now for the time in your word, and we just pray that you bless. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great theological or doctrinal questions of all time is, how is it possible for God to save sinners in the person of Jesus Christ? How is it possible for God to save sinners like you and I in the person of Jesus Christ? In Romans chapter 1 verse 1 through Romans chapter 5 and verse 11, we've been told that we need to be saved. We were revealed to us in the first few chapters, chapters 1 through 3, that we're sinners before a holy God. In chapter 4 and 5, we've been told that we need to be saved. And indeed in chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11, we've been told about the seven wonderful benefits that you and I receive because of justification, just because you and I are related to Jesus Christ, because we're justified, we've received seven wonderful benefits, and we spend numerous weeks looking at those benefits. But the question remains, even as we arrive in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the question remains, how is it possible for God to save us? Well, the answer to that question is found here in verses 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 starts with the word, wherefore. Notice what it says, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Wherefore? The word wherefore, he means by means of. Paul is now going to tell us how it is possible for God to save sinners. By what means are you and I justified? And he does this first by explaining to you and I the influence that Adam has on the human race. The influence that Adam has on the human race. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 14, we have revealed to us that influence of Adam on the human race. And we see firstly here the extent of the influence. The extent of the influence in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin of the world... And death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The extent of the influence. You know, every time you and I turn on the light, you and I are sensing the influence of a man by the name of Thomas Edison. 
Every time you and I get in an airplane and we fly, then you and I are experiencing the effect of something done by Orville and Wilbur Wright. The fact that you and I have books to read in our homes is evidence that we've been affected by a man by the name of John Gutenberg, who invented the Gutenberg Press. Our enjoyment of freedom, the freedom of religion, the freedom to worship, the absence of a state church with all of its evils that you and I have in our heritage here in Australia is, the, is as because some determined men and women in centuries past have held their ground to give us the freedoms we have today. And the list could go on and on and on about how you and I are influenced every day by actions of others. In countless ways, we are either the benefactors of their actions or we're the victims of the things done by people of former days. But you and I every day encounter benefits of actions. We become victims of actions of people from the past. And so every time you and I sin, we're showing the influence of the first man, Adam. Every time someone dies, they're experiencing the influence of Adam. And this is Paul's point right here in verse 12. He says here, For as, uh, Wherefore, as by one man sin into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for they all have sinned. Sin entered the human race by one man. And that one man was Adam. Genesis chapter 3, which pastor has been preaching on. Genesis chapter 3, here is where this passage in Romans ties into Genesis chapter 3. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, all those 6,000 plus years ago, he had an influence upon us. Because sin entered the human race by the action of Adam. When Adam and Eve, what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden has a lasting effect to the present day. You and I daily encounter the effect of Adam's sin. You and I are influenced by the sin of Adam every day of our lives. And it's important for us to understand that Adam and Eve, the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, <coughs> excuse me, is not an optional passage. To be accepted or rejected or to be allegorized or to made into some fanciful story. The story of Genesis chapter 3 in particular and the fall of man is a very real event. According to Paul's theme here in Romans chapter 5, you can't get away from it. You can't take Genesis chapter 3 away from your Bibles and understand Romans chapter 5. Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man and the consequence of the fall of man and those, uh, the curse that came upon man has a very real impact upon our understanding of Romans chapter 5. And you can't take away Genesis chapter 3 without affecting, or without taking away the principles that lay the foundation for our salvation. Genesis chapter 3 is foundational to you and I understanding our justification in Romans 5. Genesis chapter 3 is foundational for you and I understanding what it means to be saved. And Paul doesn't seek to prove that Genesis 3 is real. 
He doesn't seek to prove that sin entered into the world through Adam. He simply accepts Genesis 3 as being true. Notice what he says. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. He accepts Genesis 3 to be an absolute fact. And therefore you and I ought to too. God told Adam, now I'm not going to re-preach Genesis chapter 3 for you, in case you're wondering, I'm not going back now to cover the ground of what Pastor preached and, you know, and uh, uh, give some insights he hasn't already given. Uh, I'm just simply going to mention this. You know, God told Adam not to partake of the fruit. We know that. He was told that in the day he eats thereof, he shall surely die. And Romans chapter 5 verse 12 reveals to us the effect of that breaking of that law. It shows to us firstly the effect of that sin. Death came by sin. Look what it says in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin in the world, and death by sin. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, God promised Adam that in the day you eat thereof, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in the day thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the reality was, as we've seen in Genesis chapter 3, that when Adam and Eve sinned, they did die. Adam died spiritually. The moment he partook of that fruit, he died spiritually. His relationship with God was affected. And we're going to see more about that tonight, I believe. Adam's sin had an impact upon his relationship with God. Spiritually, he died. The moment he ate of the fruit... And eventually, Adam died physically. You and I cannot visit Adam today. He died physically. And the principle of death was introduced to the world when Adam sinned. Wherefore, as by one man sinned in the world, and death by sin. Death came into the world because of Adam's sin. And it has reigned on the earth ever since. Mankind still dies. Every grave is an evidence of the spread and the reign of sin since the time of Adam. Every time you and I visit a graveyard, every time you and I attend a funeral, every time we hear about the death of somebody, it's evidence of the consequence of Adam's sin. Adam sinned, sin in the world, and death by sin. But that's not all we see here. Not only do we see the effect of sin, but we see, secondly, the result of sin. Look again in verse 12. Wherefore is one man sin in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men. Death passed upon all men. Now why? Why is death passed upon all men? Well, he gives the answer in verse 12. For that all have sinned. Adam sinned. Death entered the world. And death has passed upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned. Now, doctrinally, this is the one of the most important and the most profound statements ever written in the Word of God. And simply put, what he's saying here is that Adam was our federal head. He stood in the Garden of Eden as our representative. He is the first Adam. He represented us in the Garden of Eden. He acted on our behalf. So when Adam sinned, we all sinned. When he died, we all died. 
What God did in the Garden of Eden with Adam was, he said, whatever Adam does, however Adam responds to this command, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, but in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam's response to that command would then be reflected as the response of every human being to exist after Adam and Eve. He represents us. So whatever he would do would then be accepted as being the standard of behavior for all of us. That's what we do. That's why we come into the world spiritually dead. Go with me to Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working the children of disobedience. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. When you and I were born, you and I were born spiritually dead. We were born in trespasses and sins. And that is why we have sinful natures. We have a sinful nature because we received that from Adam. Adam sinned and every human being since Adam are born with a sinful nature because Adam acted on our behalf. And the moment he sinned, his nature became sinful and from that moment onwards every human being has been born with a sin nature because Adam acted on our behalf in the Garden of Eden. And as a consequence of that, every one of us now have a sin nature. Now, if this was a theology class, and if I was in Bible college, we'd go into more detail here and spend a lot of time. I was talking to pastor this week about the fact that, uh, you know, to get, get this in a way in which I can just bring in one sermon is, uh, is tough. But I hope you understand what we're trying to say here that what we have is Adam standing as our representative. He acts on our behalf. And because of his behavior, his disobedience, he sinned in the garden. And when he got a sin nature, from that moment onwards, each and every one of us possess a sin nature. We are born spiritually dead. Now, you know, today's psychologists or sociologists often seek to explain the cause of human crime in human e- evil. Some would say that it's our, ver- our ver- environmental. That the environment in which people live is the cause of their behavior. That poor areas, low wages, slums, etc. are the result, are the result of that is crime and evil. Now the source of crime and evil is the environment in which somebody lives. Others say it's lack of education is the cause of crime and evil. And so what we're told by sociologists today is that what we need to do is if we could teach mankind better and if we could uh, educate them better and if we could provide for them more wages and we could provide for them better place to live, if we could make their lives more comfortable, if we could take people out of their poverty and we could make them rich, then they will do no wrong. No, that doesn't work by the way, but that's a another story for another day. But whatever the effects of our poor environment, whatever the effects of poor education are, 
the basic cause of crime is not education. The basic cause of crime is not social standing. The basic cause of crime is not low wages and poverty. The basic cause of crime and evil is the sinful nature of mankind. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because we have a sin nature. And every parent who's had any uh, children know that you don't have to teach children to do wrong. You have to teach them to do right. That'd be nice, wouldn't it, if you know your child is born, and from the moment they're born, they just do right. And you never have to teach them to do right. It's just the nat- their nature is to do right. Wouldn't that make parenting so much simpler? You know, every child, when you said, do something, they said, yes, mum, yes, dad. And they just did it because they had such a wonderful nature. But they don't. You know, the the wickedness is bound up in the heart of a child because why? They're born with a sin nature. It's a characteristic that we have because of Adam. Now we need to understand that the doctrine of imputed sin is of vital importance for our salvation. Because we need to understand this. If one man did not represent the human race in the Garden of Eden, then one man could not represent the human race on the cross of Calvary. If Adam did not stand as our representative in the Garden of Eden, our federal head in the Garden of Eden, Christ could not stand as the second Adam, our spiritual head, on the cross of Calvary. And if Christ could not stand as our representative at Calvary, then salvation could not be ours. In one man. So this is a wonderful doctrine. This is, this is God's plan. You know, it's, Adam and Eve's sin did not catch God by surprise. He had a plan. And his plan was he was going to make Adam our representative in the Garden of Eden. He was going to stand there. And whatever Adam did, God was going to assume that that's the characteristic of all human beings. And therefore, because of his sin, we all are declared sinners before a holy God. So that Christ could go to the cross of Calvary and he could die in our place as our representative. One representative brought us into sin. One representative can forgive us our sins. One representative brought upon us death. One representative can bring upon us life. Salvation can be ours because of what God ordained in the Garden of Eden with regards to Adam, made it possible for Christ to die in our place on Calvary and provide salvation for the human race. Christ can die for all of us, for in Adam we all sinned. That's what he says in verse 12. Wherefore, as one, by, one man sinned into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now the word for there, for that all have sinned. The word for is the word because. And what he says here in verse 12 is this. He says, Wherefore is by one man sin in the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, because that all have sinned. Death passed upon all men because of Adam. That's what he's saying here. This is because, Adam, because in Adam all sinned, we all die. Now they have sin there in verse 12. 
For that all have sinned, because that all have sinned, that word have sinned is what's called the aorist tense. And it's a once time act. Okay, this happened once. So Adam sinned, and because Adam sinned, we have all sinned. Because Adam sinned, he caused you and I to sin. When Adam died, we all died. Now, to illustrate this, uh, I borrowed this illustration from Pastor Mitchell, so I'll give credit where credit is due. Uh, But uh, Pastor Mitchell gives this illustration to explain this point. He says this, When our Prime Minister declares war in another country, the whole Australian... Uh, uh, the whole of Australia is then declaring war on that country. When the Prime Minister became an enemy, all Australians become enemies. And that's the truth. If our Prime Minister tomorrow declared war on another country, then the whole country would be at war with that country. And when our Prime Minister became the enemy of another country, then the whole country is at war with that other country. In fact, we can... uh, see a little bit of that, not physical war, but we've seen a bit of that with this whole China trade issue. Our Prime Minister called for uh, uh, an inquiry into where the coronavirus started in China to get to the bottom of it, to find out, uh, you know, the, the first person to contact it, where they get it from, to get an understanding of the virus, and uh, the Chinese looked upon that as being a diplomatic war, and in response to that, they then sanctioned our barley and our beef and so on. They've stopped it coming into the country because they're putting tariffs on it. So because the Prime Minister was seen to declare war on China, the country is seen at war with China, and therefore they've retaliated towards the country, not just our Prime Minister. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 12. When Adam sinned, I sinned. When Adam died, I died. Now, this might seem odd and unfair. But this was the only way God could ensure that he could secure our salvation through his Son. There was no other means of securing salvation for you and I through his Son except by him saying that in Adam we all sin. In Adam we all died. Whatever Adam did as our representative, God is shooting to be true of all of us so that he could send his son to die for us. Now we may not like the fact that we're made sinners by the work of another. We may protest. And we may say, I want to stand on my own two feet and not be made a sinner because of the work of another. But here's the rub. If Adam had not stood as our representative, each of us would need an individual saviour to die for us. The reality is this. If Adam is not our representative, then God would have had to do a number of things. First of all, he would have had to give each and every one of us a test. We'd have had to be put to the test. Every one of us would have, a, would have had a tree of knowledge of good and evil to choose from. And since God knows our nature, he knows that every one of us would have eaten that tree. But then what we would require is, because we've sinned in isolation, each and every one of us would require a saviour. Christ would have to die 
over and over and over and over again, billions of times, in order that all of us could be saved. So what God did was smart. God said, I'll make one man your representative in the garden, I'll make one man your representative at the cross of Calvary, and whatever one man does in the garden, we'll assume is the characteristic of all mankind, and what Christ does at Calvary, we'll allow that to stand for all mankind. This is God's great and glorious plan. We might not like it. We may think that it's unfair. We may even think that, it, well, you know, we might think it's a dumb idea. But when you think it through, this is God's eternal wisdom that's uh, going uh, on display here for you and I. You see, otherwise we need individual saviors. And that would have been very, very difficult. Because Christ is our representative, because he represented us at Calvary, and because of what God did with Adam, Christ can die for us. Which is what verses 15 and to 17 actually say. Look what it says. But as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of, by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 18, Therefore, as by, one offense, or by the offense of one judgment came upon all, to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover the Lord entered, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Glorious passage of Scripture. And over the weeks to come, we're going to look at each of these verses as we go along. And you and I can praise the Lord for this. This ought to be something that you and I get excited about, that Christ died as our representative on Calvary because Adam stood as our representative in the garden. And I said we'll consider that next time. But as we continue here, the next two verses of Romans chapter 5 are an illustration or an evidence of the fact that sin and death come to everyone through Adam. And these verses are, secondly, the proof of the influence. The proof of the influence. We started out by looking, first of all, at the uh, extent of the influence. Now we look at the proof of the influence in verses 13 and 14. For under the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him that was to come. No, he says this, for until the law, sin was in the world. Until the law, sin was in the world. The apostle here tells you and I that sin existed even though the law had not yet been given. 
And this is an important understanding that you and I have. When it comes to understanding this passage of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, you and I need to understand, not only is Adam our federal head, and Christ is our spiritual head, which is what Paul's trying to demonstrate here, and he does so in verse 12, he picks it up again in verse 18, and notice from verse 13 to verse 17, it's in brackets. Okay? So this is an explanation of what he's just said. This, this is a, he's going to take some time to part. You can actually read verse 12, Wherefore is by one man sin in the world, and, and uh, death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for the law of sin, and then verse 18, Therefore, as by one offense one, uh, of one, judgment came upon all men. You could read it that way. You don't need to read the bit in the middle here to get the context of what he's saying, but here is an explanation. The apostle is going to explain to us what he is talking about. He wants you and I to get a handle and understanding of some things. Now, the things that he records between the brackets are not that easy to get your head around. Okay? They are not that simple. And I have spent much of the last week and a bit trying to get my head around it in bits and pieces. And uh, I don't know how far I'm going to get in verse 13 and 14, but I'm going to try to get through this and get uh, uh, some understanding. So... Uh, you know, I often thought to myself this week, what you need to do is buckle in and just uh, uh, hold tight now while we try and go through this in a simple way and understand it. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to do it. Okay, so he says this, until the law, sin is in the world. Well, he wants you and I to understand this, that sin existed even though the law was not yet given. Now, why is that important? Because God's definite standard of righteousness is the law, isn't it? The law was given by Moses, to Moses, to us, that we might know God's standard of righteousness. But the law was not given until the time of Moses. Hundreds of years after Adam. Now we know that the law was given for a reason. The law was given to prove that sin is transgression. The law establishes and defines that fact. We know that we are sinners because God's law reveals it. In Galatia we're told that the law was given as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It's the standard. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. How do we know we've fallen short of God's glory? Have a look at the law. Have a look at God's divine standard, the law, and the law exposes you and I as sinners. You and I know that we have sinned against a holy God because a holy God has revealed to us in his law what his righteousness looks like. So we know the law was given that sin, to demonstrate to you and I that sin is a transgression of God's holy nature and that sin uh, and the law establishes for you and I and defines for you and I that standard. But here in Romans 5.13, he says, for until the law, sin was in the world. Okay? For until the law, sin was in the world. So he shows us that even though there was no written law between Adam and Moses, there was indeed sin in the world. People sinned. Now he's already said in verse 12 that Adam 
caused sin to enter the world. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. So Adam is the cause of sin entering the world, and sin exists between Adam and Moses, but there was no law. So he goes on to say in verse 13 this, he says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now this sounds like a contradiction of statements. Okay, sin was in the world before the law, but there is no sin when there is no law. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Or to put it another way, sin is not charged against people, or they cannot be held guilty if there is no law. So between Adam and Moses there is no law, because the law doesn't come till Moses. And therefore, but man sinned, we know man sinned because man died. Man had a sin nature because they inherited it from Adam, and man sinned because man died. But there was no law. So how is God being righteous? How is God being fair? How is God doing the right thing if people are dying when there is no law? The passage here states a great and important principle that people will not be held guilty unless there is a law. Romans 4.15, go back there please, Romans 4.15. Affirms this for us, it says this, uh, Romans 4.15, Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. So this is a self-evident proposition. For sin is a violation of the law. And if there is no law, there can be no wrong. That's self-evident. If there is no law, you can't break it. Okay? You can't break a law that doesn't exist. You can't be held accountable for a law that doesn't exist. People can impose penalty upon you for a law that does not exist. That's a fact today, that's a reality, and that is true in the word of God. God cannot judge you for a law that does not exist. It's a self-evident proposition. that sin is a violation of law, and if there is no law, there can be no wrong. Now, assuming this as a self-evident proposition, then it must also be a self-evident proposition that there must have been a law of some kind prior to Moses. That's his point here, okay? If death reigns from Adam to Moses, and yet there is no law from Adam to Moses, then, and man, rather, man sinned from Adam to Moses, and there is no law from Adam to Moses, but death reigns from Adam to Moses, there must have been a law by which God's judging mankind. It's a self-evident proposition. That's his point, verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. Sin's in the world, but there is no law. Well, there must have been a law. And there was. Look in Romans chapter 2, please. Romans chapter 2. And let's pick it up in verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law should be justified. 
For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. There is a law. There's a law written on their hearts. It might be stated that since there was a long period of time when mankind had no law from Adam to Moses, then they could not be declared to be sinners. The truth is, though, the people were in fact sinners and they were treated as such, which is showed that there must have been a law. It's clear that God was dealing with sin as sin and death reigned during a period from Adam to Moses. There obviously was a law working whereby God regarded all people of Adam to Moses as sinners. Now we have a classic example of this, don't we? Between Genesis and Exodus. In Genesis chapter 6 through 10, we have a great example of the very thing he's talking about. It's a little thing called a flood. Okay? Remember what the Lord does in Genesis chapter 6? He looks upon the hearts of men and what does he see? That they're wicked continually. And so he calls upon Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives where God found righteousness. He calls upon them to build an ark Because what God's going to do is God's going to destroy the world with a flood because of the wickedness of man's hearts. Men were sinners. There was no law yet. The Mosaic law hadn't come, but men were sinners because God had a law in their hearts. They knew what God required of them. And the reason, the reason is because when you get to Noah, they're very close to Adam still. And you know, Noah's relatives were friends of Adam and Eve. Remember how long people lived? They knew what was required of them. There was a law. It was in their hearts. It wasn't written down. But what Paul's trying to establish is that sin has reigned from Adam through to today even when there was no law, because there was a law. It wasn't written law, but there was a law. Otherwise, there would have been no flood. There would have been no Tower of Babel if there wasn't a law. The apostle argument is that death comes by sin. Isn't that what he just said in verse 12? Wherefore, as by one man sin in the world, and death by sin. That's his point. Death exists because of sin. It's a fact that death came upon all these people and therefore it's obvious that their death must have been caused by sin. Sin is still sin. And the wage of sin is still death. In Romans 6.23, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the apostle makes this even clearer in verse 14. And we don't have time to go there today because I've already been going for about 
40 minutes, I think. So uh, we might uh, have to call it uh, a day there, which is sad because verse 14 explains more. Just what it says in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that are not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even those who have not sinned this, after Adam's sin, death did indeed reign. We're all condemned. The wage of sin is death. But praise God, Romans 6.23 doesn't end there. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You and I can praise the Lord for doctrine. Now I know that this, these passages, this Romans chapter 5, is going to be a little uh, on the heavy side, okay? because it is like that. But we can praise God for doctrine, even though it takes a bit to get our heads around it. And we can praise God for his wisdom in setting up Adam as our federal head, setting him up as our representative in the Garden of Eden so that Christ could be our spiritual head on the cross of Calvary. So that as Adam represented us in the garden and we all died and death passed upon all men because all have sinned, so in Christ we can all be saved. For whosoever believeth on him shall be saved. He stands as our representative. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be declared the rights of God in him. And we ought to be thankful that God in his wisdom made Adam our representative in the garden so that Christ can be our representative at Calvary so that he can become our saviour. We'll see more of this next week. Today let's give thanks to God for our second Adam, Christ, who died that we might live. And I trust that you today know Jesus Christ, your saviour. I trust today there has been a time and place in your life whereby you acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for you. That he stood in your place on Calvary. He stood in your stead on Calvary. And the wrath of God was poured upon him for you. And then you acknowledge that the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ your, our Lord. And that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Because while doctrine may well be complicated and doctrine may well stretch our minds, the wonderful truth is that salvation is simple. Christ died for sinners like you and me. I trust you know him, you're the Savior today, and if you do, I trust you give thanks unto God today for the salvation that's yours through him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you, Father, for Romans chapter 5. And Lord, I know that it is very deep at times and Lord it's very difficult to comprehend I do pray Father God that you'd help each of us to understand the importance of doctrine the importance of these things even though they're not easy to comprehend they're important to understand for us as believers that we might get a better understanding of what our standing is in Christ and Lord if anybody here today uh, anyone listening today is not saved may they recognize their need of the saviour May they trust him even this day, Father God, before it's eternally too late. Lord, commend your word to us today. Minister to us through your word, we pray. And bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.